0: Welcome to The Republican Professor. Today we have with us Dr. R. Douglas Guyvitt and Mrs. Polly Pivick. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having us.
0: Hey,
2: Lucas. Good to be with you.
0: The focus of our talk today is their newest book, which is called Counterfeit Kingdom, and it's the third volume in a series looks like um the first two are uh god's super apostles and i know that that's kind of far away but most are listening audio only and then the new apostolic reformation question mark a biblical response to a worldwide movement so that looks like you've been doing a lot of work over the last 10 years
2: yes we have that's uh three volumes uh yeah. the first two came out in 2014 and then the counterfeit kingdom book is recent just a few months ago we right. have a full book coming out as well
0: oh really okay mm-hmm. cool well i've spent the most time recently in the counterfeit kingdom book uh this one right here and um it's uh It's actually a pretty easy read. Um, You can cruise through it uh, pretty quickly. But um, I wondered if you would just lay the groundwork for what, how this topic got on your radar and how did you guys start working together?
1: Yeah, I'll start um, because it started with me. When I was, I was working at Biola University as the managing editor of Biola Magazine and, um, I would receive emails from readers of the magazine. And one day I received a letter from a woman who had graduated from Biola and she was describing this movement of churches that she said, or this movement, this movement that she said was taking over churches in her city. And she was very concerned about it. And so she wrote the magazine, I think, hope, hoping, that, um, someone would forward it maybe to a professor, you know, at the seminary or something like that. And that would prompt them to write a book responding to this movement and showing uh, where the teachings go off biblically and, and why they're harmful. And, um, and so, but it caught my attention when I received this letter, because I was a researcher of cults and, and off key groups. And uh, I was writing articles for the Christian research journal around that time about different, Different um, cults and aberrant groups, and but I had never heard of this movement that she had described, led by apostles and prophets. And so I got online, I did a Google search, and I started realizing that this movement was actually very um, large and influential, even twenty years ago. But I didn't know the teachings, and I didn't know the buzzword, so I I wasn't able to see the signs of it that had been around me. And interestingly. Um, even though it started off as, as really more of an academic interest um, and a curiosity, I I quickly realized that someone I had just met and started, had been dating was actually a part of this movement because now I knew the lingo, I knew the, the theology and, and what to look out for. And so that's, that's Adam, who's now my husband. He thankfully, his eyes were opened. He left this movement. He's now a pastor and he warns people about it, but but and then as far as working with Doug, um, you know, I started realizing 20 years ago that that there was really uh, no major book that had been put out responding to this movement. And so I, I felt like, well, maybe I should work on that book. And so um, I persuaded Doug uh, to team up with me in that project. And he can tell you about uh, why he did that.
2: Yeah, so Holly approached me with this project and told me she'd done all this research about a movement I'd really not heard of by that name, the New Apostolic Reformation. And of course, this is quite a few years ago now. I was teaching uh, in the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I knew Holly from her days there on the editorial board, and prior to that, when she was a student, um, completing her MA degree in Christian apologetics. And so uh, she sent me some uh, writing that she had done that documented her concerns, and uh, I became concerned myself. Now, I do quite a bit of writing in Christian philosophy, Christian thought, some theology, a lot about the Christian life. And, um, you know, I work in the area of uh, philosophy, religion, epistemology, And I could see all sorts of problems. I I could see problems with the way uh, people were thinking about God, about theology, how they were using the Bible, and how they had conceived of the best way for Christians to engage culture, Uh, which, of course, is one of my major interests, my major concerns, is how best uh, to do that and uh, what it should look like when we want to persuade people of the attractiveness of Christianity. And initially, you can see why in this movement, and and this will probably become apparent as we get going, uh, it would be attractive to certain people uh, or quite a number of people. It has been. But uh, I've always uh, taught and I firmly believe that we should never offer as evidence things that we do not think ourselves are very good evidence. And uh, this was one of my concerns as well, is that uh, miracles, for example, and contemporary claims about miracles and prophecies and uh, how the church should be organized just didn't seem to add up in relation to a close study of Scripture or even empirically when you look at the evidence for and against their occurrence. So uh, that that was what drew me in, Lucas, uh, to a, a discussion with Holly about this. And I've written on miracles, uh, the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus, historical miracles, but also contemporary miracles and uh, theism, Christian belief and so forth. So I thought uh, we would uh, be able we we might have a good experiment, at least working together. And it turned out to be such a good and, and productive, fruitful partnership that, as we've mentioned already, we've uh, done four books together and we've been speaking on this topic together as well. Before live audiences and also in podcasts like this one.
0: All right. So it sounds. I mean, I, I'll give you my impressions uh, as I go go through this. I'm just going to walk through uh, the book um, chronologically, as it were. Um, I. It strikes me that you're doing like a church history type of a book because. And I want to ask you about the footnotes. Do you have uh, archived uh, copies of everything from the internet? Because uh, a lot of this is internet sources. Mm-hmm. Do yes. you have Do you have copies of everything?
1: Yes. Some, sometimes
0: that stuff gets taken down.
1: Right. Yes, it, it does. does. And it often gets taken down.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Especially in a, in a, when dealing with a movement like this, because. Uh the, the movement leaders, NAR leaders, we, we use NAR for an abbreviation for yeah. New Apostolic Reformation. NAR leaders are real skittish about responding to critics. And one of their standard responses when they're criticized about something that's online and visible to the the, the, the world wide web, um, is they simply take it down. And and they don't respond, they just take it down and say, Well, that's not up there. <laughs> Uh, So we know that and we've archived these things so that we have our own files, everything we need to substantiate what we've said. But of course, as far as researchers are concerned, if you've documented something that was genuinely legitimately up on the Internet and done it in the way that that academics are supposed to do that, then whether it's up or down or it's still (laughs) if you've uh, indexed uh, everything correctly uh it's still considered satisfactory research and documentation
0: yeah i'm i was thinking uh i did archival research as one of my research tools for my uh phd and so i think in terms of archives for the for the future and uh i think of of students in the far future and mm-hmm. that might not be satisfactory to them uh if if they're looking at this um and they can't find what you're, what you've researched, what even though it's a legitimate footnote for the time yes. being, yes, that's my my concern was is that for archives you have everything that you need, mm-hmm. uh, to have uh, in a library, that can be accessed somewhere.
2: Yes, so, and uh, we've also used archives when when we have uh, discovered that something that we document is taken down. Oh, good. Uh, we we've that's discovered good. that it's it's can be found elsewhere on the internet okay uh, through archiving uh, services oh okay. that, uh, that do that sort of thing uh, but you're right. always at the mercy it's you know it's the yeah uh, the digital era means that uh, being able to uh, ensure and guarantee for perpetuity um, the availability of those sources is is a challenge absolutely
0: yeah I, I was thinking because actually I've had uh, Lance wallnow on this podcast.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: and his episode is now taken down from YouTube. They took it down.
2: For this podcast? Yes. Oh, do you know and the, why? And they,
0: they threatened to take the entire channel down.
2: Oh. Yeah, which do you is what YouTube is? does.
0: They 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 deplatform and they, they cancel mm-hmm. culture and stuff like that. So uh-huh. someone doing research on what I've done with Lance would not have access to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least not on YouTube. Now you, you know, there's other platforms, but so that's why I was curious about like you might you might want to double check and you know have extra copies of things and and stuff mm-hmm. for the for the long future, you know, because yeah.
1: we definitely do really, that.
0: This is yes. a church history project you're working on. This is this is interesting snapshot of of American history. And um, okay, so just just the comment about. The concern about the backing up of things. Mm -hmm. Now, um, now on the on the church history, uh, insight there, it seems like you have to figure out whether there's a coherent movement here, and that seems a little tricky to do because you have, it it doesn't seem like they're highly organized. Um, uh, p- folks that want to write a lot of books and document and, you know, and, and have a, a firm, it, it seems like uh, it would be a little hard to, uh, you know, it's not like you're tracking Presbyterians or something like that. You know, I mean, where they, they're very concerned about writing down exactly what they believe and, and having it in some kind of, you know, confession of some, some kind and having, um, strict ties. So how did you figure out how, who's connected to who and
1: yeah, and so
0: who drops so, out of the picture, who, who enters the picture?
1: Yeah. So yeah, good question. The, the thing that, um, the core teaching that unites people in this movement is the belief that there are governing apostles and prophets for today that apostles and prophets are, are authoritative and they hold like formal offices and church government or have governing roles in the church. And so that's the thing that sets apart people in this movement from all other Christians, um, even from Pentecostals and Charismatics, Pentecostals and Charismatics and other continuationists, of course, will believe in the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, healing, prophesying, those kind of things. But in NAR, they're not talking just about the gifts, they're also talking about offices, these offices of apostle and prophet that, that are governmental and that all others are supposed to submit to even all other church offices, even pastors or elders. And so that's what uh, differentiates people who are part of this movement from all others. And that, and that's what makes this movement uh, novel as well through church history.
0: Now, is that mainly at Bethel? Have you been to Bethel?
1: Yes, we we both have been to Bethel at different times, and okay. um, so no Bethel would be probably the most influential church in this movement today. But Bethel's just one church that promotes yeah. governing apostles and prophets. There, according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon Conwell, there are three point five million Americans who attend churches that have actually joined apostolic networks, so they formally come under uh, an apostle of that network. But in addition, uh, according to that center, there are many millions more who attend churches uh, where these teachings have made inroads in varying degrees. And then globally, of course, this movement accounts for much of the explosive growth of Christianity in the global South, Africa, yeah. Asia, Latin America. And we receive letters from people literally all around the world uh Daily, weekly, sharing the stories of the way these teachings have come into their churches and, and caused damage and division. But, but the, again, the key thing is the governing apostles and prophets, and that that belief is held by uh, many, many churches, not in leaders and in organizations, not just those, not just Bethel.
2: Right. So you see connections uh, among organizations, individuals, churches, various groups uh, through their shared beliefs. Uh, that are fundamental to how we understand NAR. And then uh, oftentimes they agree about certain practices as well. They might part company on other points. Uh, They often do. So uh, that's one point of commonality is with regard to beliefs about uh, doctrine and practice and how the Bible should be interpreted. Uh, A second category is, is that they are networked with each other. And many times the organizations themselves are very, very uh, organized and have a a very definite structure and uh, a constitution and bylaws or what have you. And uh, so they are organizationally as individual units, oftentimes quite organized, but uh, they also network with each other. And Holly mentioned that there are these apostolic coalitions and groups of various sorts that unite in various causes and they um they co-host events around the country uh they tra- they move back and forth uh to speak at each other's organizations organizations or in their churches and so uh Bethel Church for example will host people that are in the movement not but not part of uh you know Bethel Church in Redding California and so when you track these movements and you look at the uh list of uh apostolic groups and then you compare their um, their writings and their, uh, presentations, their audio presentations, you're able to see quite a, a clear picture emerge. It's not really that hard to do. It's just that there's a lot of material to gather. And then, and then, that uh, it seems order. like a lot of work. <laughs> it is that.
0: And especially if, if the folks you're tracking are a little cagey and mm. they change their minds and they're not firm on things, that seems like yeah. a really hard project. And they, yeah. well, and they
1: use tactics such as equivocating on language. Sure. And so when we start talking about, well, the, you have to watch for the offices of apostle prophet. Well, we've had a well-known, our leader tell us, well, I'm moving away from using the term office because I know that makes people nervous. So now we're talking about functions of apostle a prophet, or um, they'll talk about things like the, the ascension gifts and things like that. But often they still have. In view is governmental offices, so they're not changing they're not you know they're they're just changing the words around a little bit and and so equivocation is very common in this movement, and that also makes it it difficult
2: right and they use language that is already familiar within the history of Christian thought, but they invest it with meaning that's quite different than whatever historical sense it has and so and then they they will talk about various practices like prayer. But then they'll talk about versions or or ways of praying, kinds of praying that are not even uh, captured in Scripture at all. And uh, they'll make a strong distinction, for example, between what they call declaration prayer and petitionary prayer. They're absolutely not the same thing. They make the distinction themselves. But a lot of people don't catch that. They just think they hear a prayer and they think, oh, it's all the same. And right. they're asking for things or they're declaring things. And some people might confuse that with petitionary prayer. And it sure. seems a lot of NAR leaders are okay with this kind of um uh vagary uh you know, built in. It's almost inherent in the system. But worse still, Lucas, is that sometimes they'll they won't just equivocate, but they'll flip-flop. They'll they'll speak uh of something as an instance of declaration prayer which uh, should have a high incidence of coming uh, to pass as predicted or anticipated because it's prophetic, it's inherently prophetic. But then when it doesn't happen, oftentimes they'll re-describe what they were doing as if it was petitionary prayer, which they don't value nearly as much, and which they clearly think is something completely different. And so uh, that must be really confusing to a lot of people as well, when they actually switch explanations uh, for things that they're doing when things turn out a different way than they anticipated.
1: Sure. That happened with all of, so Lu- Lucas, yeah. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but in 2019. Of your first yeah, chapter. Okay. <laughs> okay, right. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. They Bethel Church thought to raise this two-year-old girl from the dead yeah. by making prayer declarations, but afterwards, sure. after trying for six days, after it was picked up in the national media, they then sent out a press release, and I don't think this is, an, is in the book, but um, they sent out a press release. Uh, where they recast what they had been doing, not as declaration, but as petitionary prayers that they were just asking God, um, you know, to raise all of, and who could fault them for that. And so that's, what's kind of happening is, is these um, switching of terms. And it's
2: revisionist. It's fundamentally revisionist within their own uh, beliefs, practices, and traditions. Right. So here's a,
0: you know, question that might come up is why do people still? Uh, what's the attraction then? Mm.
1: Well, we one thing I mean, we talk about in the book we we refer to the apostles and prophets as blessings, the blessing brokers. Basically, mm-hmm. people believe that if they come under the authority, or or to use an our buzzword, the spiritual covering of a pot of an apostle. Then right. the then blessings will trickle down to those who come under their authority, and that includes protection for de- from demonic demons, um, blessings like health, wealth, prosperity, these kind of things. Knowing. Uh, being able to fulfill your divine destiny, um, being able right. to break free from demonic strongholds, all of these things are tied up in coming into proper submission or alignment. That's another NAR buzzword. So they won't always say you, you have to submit to us. They'll say you need to align with us and come under yeah. our covering. And these are softer ways, euphemisms for saying these things. And, and so people fear that if they leave the spiritual covering of an apostle, or profit, they will be outside of God's will. They may face judgment and consequences for that.
0: I, I mean, I, I feel like as I'm reading this, I, I'm I think I have some personal connection with folks that you identify in this movement. I I saw the name Rick Joyner. Mm-hmm. Is that a familiar name to you?
1: Yeah, he is definitely a, a leading apostle. In this I've,
0: movement. I've had I've had cigars with him. Uh huh. You know, I mean, I know these people. And yes. and so it's a little bit sometimes when I'm reading it, the the description doesn't fit with what I've experienced. Yes. And so it's a little bit like like I taught at Loyola Marymount for a long time, and the question is, is it really a Catholic school? You know, kind of thing. It it has Catholic priests, you know, wandering around and and the Catholic church is a top-down organization. It's got a center in a specific city, Rome. It's got a hierarchy and it's got, um, you know, I'm sure it's got bank accounts and, and, and it's got some kind of control, you know, and do you sense that that's, what's happening here is, is there a center? Are there, you know, if, if Loyola, for example, is like kind of a half-baked Catholic school, is, is is there a a shade are there shades of nar people um, like some are more firmly in the center or the dark color and then it kind of hmm. goes out' Cause I, I'm when you use the word they I, I'm just not sure how you how well, how I- we can understand.
1: I mean, you know, again, the core belief is, do you hold the governing apostles and prophets, which Rick Joyner clearly does, and other, others we've identified as NAR. Um,
0: so is and, there is a core, but it's not
2: really, it's not like the Catholic Church where there's... Uh, Think of it this way, Lucas. Think of it as a difference between uh, what a historian does when he narrates uh, the history of Well, a biography of an individual's life, George Washington, or of the, um, uh, you know, articles of Confederation or the Constitution of the United States, how this came about and how we got the documents that we do have and, you know, who signed them and what did they believe about them? What were their comments and so forth? What was the controversy that led finally to their their approval by the colonies and so on? You can do that or you could talk about the history of ideas and with the history of ideas it's not as uh, concrete as that because what you have to do is you have to connect the dots among individuals who may agree with each other on some points and not on others and then there are trends in the culture and trends in society so the new apostolic reformation is not like the roman catholic church in that it's this historic entity that has this own kind of its own kind of magisterium and its own kind of monolithics um presence in the world even there of course you you get um diverse points of view different parts of the world the church manifests in different ways uh there are conservatives and liberals within the roman catholic church just as there is within uh protestant denominationalism and so forth but there's something there that's yes. emerged historically and you can kind right. of document all that now there huh. are events in the history of the emergence of uh nar and there are antecedents historical antecedents to it as well so there are some markers in that respect but we use um what holly described as this core uh teaching about the authority of apostles and prophets that's the sine qua non and it's it's necessary um for our purposes that an individual uh meet those conditions but also it's sufficient if they do so uh, having necessary and sufficient conditions of that sort is helpful in being able to identify individuals. And so when we say they, uh, we're referring to anyone who believes those things. And then when we talk about individuals, whether it's Rick Joyner or someone else, Bill Johnson at Bethel Church, uh, you know, it's because we can document uh, what we claim uh, about them. And so far uh, they have not shown us that we've been mistaken in our documentation about those things.
0: Is Luke, Bill Johnson. Might... Oh, sorry.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I, go ahead.
0: I was just going to ask is Bill Johnson, the guy that shakes.
1: Oh no, you're thinking of maybe Lou Engel.
0: Oh, okay. All right. Uh,
1: um, I was going to say, you know, Rick Joyner too is is actually known as one of the more extreme leaders in this movement. But in our book, A New Apostolic Reformation, we, we, talk, we actually cite some, some things he says. And he talks about, he, we, we, we say the greater miraculous works to be performed by NAR apostles, prophets, and their followers. So these are, in NAR, they teach that um, followers of the apostles and prophets in the in time will work greater miracles than Jesus worked. And these are things that, that Rick Joyner actually says in his books, that they'll heal every patient within entire hospitals, and mental institutions through the simple lane of hands on buildings. They'll divert raging floods with a single word. They'll possess authority over all natural laws such as gravity, time, space, and mass. They'll command mountains, command mountains to literally be cast into the sea, have the mountains obey them. They'll prophetically reveal simple natural cures for fatal diseases. Uh, they'll prophesy with comprehensive, comprehensive knowledge of everything that happens before it occurs, nothing will take them by surprise, and they will participate in regular councils with angels, among other things. Um, so these are all things that Rick Joyner says that will happen in the end time under end time apostles and prophets who will rise up and work these greater miracles than Jesus.
0: Let's go back to the prophet thing and the apostle thing. How do you identify a prophet?
2: How do we or how do they themselves identify
0: um, them? I think in your book, you give uh, you give a method for identifying a prophet.
2: You mean a legitimate prophet or?
0: Yeah. And how, and you can contrast it with
2: how they do. Mm-hmm. Well, this is one of the questions that we've had for them is uh, on what basis should anybody believe that this NAR prophet really is a prophet? Right. Uh, what, I- what are his or her credentials that establish um
0: Maybe for those who don't have a religious background, because this is the Republican professor. So there's there's a lot of people here that think this is extremely weird. Yes. But they would think that the Bible itself is extremely weird. Correct. Yeah, sure. Anything in Christianity is extremely weird. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just keep that in mind when I'm having cigars with Rick Joyner, the kind of conversation I was having with him, I -hmm. immediately asked him what kind of gun he carries for self-defense. And yes. I'm not going to say anything more about the uh, because I don't have permission to to share. But it was you know, I'm I'm the Republican. First, so I'm looking at what's his stance on the Second Amendment, because as you point out, these people are Republicans.
2: Well, many and, of them, are. I don't know of and, any that aren't, but, well, but they wanted Trump always, to be reelected. Right. I think well, that's pretty uh, well documented. We, right? we are quite open to the possibility that you could be NAR. And not vote Republican or vote for Trump and and be a Trump supporter, but well, you could be th- Republican and not vote for Trump, but that's true too. Yes, of course. But, but they, in so my experience, not, they are. In my experience, that's right. I I would say that that's a fair um, generalization. But, but
0: Mormons thing. are too. I mean, like, you know. Right. So you know, there's there's different projects going on here. So just FYI, but you know. Go ahead, exactly. What you're
2: and and so when we're having conversations with someone about uh, politics or the Second Amendment or, uh, you know, other things that are going on in the culture, uh, what they believe about the issues we're discussing here may not even come up. You know, that they have they have lives that that are uh, connected with our lives in in various ways of mutual concern. Yeah, I and, had a
0: great I had a great time with them.
2: Yes. And I don't I don't. Doubt that, sure. and and I would I would expect that.
0: I've never uh, been to so, Bethel though. I've never been to Reading. I've never been mm-hmm. there. But the kids I was teaching there, I was teaching logical fallacies there at, at uh Morning Star. Mm-hmm. You know, they they're I think they've been some of them have been there and yes. spent time there. So, and I've heard these the popular
2: destination for young people in the church. That's that's yeah. true. Yeah.
1: Well, but, and Rick Joyner is um ha- has a relationship with Bill Johnson. Um, he's he, yeah. Well, so. I, I you
0: know I'm a little bit. I, I don't like the rushed feeling of this because I think the nature of this material is quite sensitive, and mm-hmm. it's. It, it feels like uh, I, I generally try to stay away from the radio type rushed getting your points in and stuff because I, I honestly feel like people tune it out mm. um, and and this kind of thing I feel like there there might be a few issues just under the surface if we could get to it that mm. could have a lasting value to people everywhere like even people in this movement that watch this and also non-believers as well I'm really concerned about non-believers what they're thinking with this. and
2: this has been one of my concerns as well like i said earlier is yeah just seeing how uh uh this group understands the nature of christian engagement with culture yes and, uh, that's so important and it, we need to be winsome in a, in in the right sense of that term and uh that's built into my sense of what christian apologetics is as a branch of theology that's concerned with Proper grounding of Christian belief, so uh, that means that that people should, you know, Christians use the term gospel as shorthand for what they consider to be uh, God's design for human flourishing and what the good life should look like and can look like on God's terms. And and most of us, Christian or not, religious or not, have views about what human flourishing depends on and what the good life consists in. And uh the yeah. Christian worldview is like that. It has a view about these things and believes that the point of reference for that is transcendent. It's it's God who's provided revelation and met humanity at their deepest level of, of need uh for uh discovery and knowledge of, of the truth about the good, the true, and the beautiful. So uh <clears throat> that's right. And 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 so if that's really good news, as yeah. the word gospel is supposed to mean then it should be good news and should be seen to be good news by uh, uh, people who don't believe it yet when they hear it and see it in its authentic presentation and, and manifestation. Right. So this is why I've ha- one of the reasons why I've been concerned about NAR is because I'm concerned that um, it, it it garbles the message of that gospel that I've just described and also uh, presents a basis for believing that is not uh, really consistent with the tenets of the tradition or its main source of knowledge, namely the Bible. So, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I would like for people to see what's attractive about Christianity when we present it and what's attractive about the person of Jesus Christ himself. And <clears throat> that should should be uh, uh, foremost in our thinking as we organize our case and then live uh, the gospel message of Jesus before the world.
0: Yeah. I what you guys are not unfamiliar with the book by, by Mark Noel called the scandal of the evangelical mind. Remember right, that familiar. book?
2: Yes, of course. Uh-huh.
0: I mean, I, as I'm reading your book, I I'm thinking of that book constantly, um, mm-hmm. short attention spans, the, the feelings based kind of religion, especially when you mentioned the music. Yes. Um, you know, we we started going to an Anglican church a while ago because I just hated going into—I'm not going to say the name of the church, but a standard evangelical church that would not fall on under the category
2: here—and
0: mm-hmm. feeling like I was in a Coldplay concert.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
0: don't think it's good for the people in the audience, and I don't even like that term, audience. And I and and I don't think it's good for the people singing the songs and I, that, I mean, I don't care if you're singing amazing grace. I don't care if you're singing hymns. I don't like that. I just don't like the, all that, but that's me. I mean, I, I just don't think it's helpful. Well, but it is I, true that there's
2: everything we do either privately as Christians yeah, in worship or in what we, we hope is faithful discipleship with Jesus or when we're gathered together collectively as a, as a church, um it should be done thoughtfully so that what we're doing is uh right. reinforcing um the the sober uh truth of what we believe growing in our conviction and uh and worshiping god in 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 spirit and in truth that's And I I think it's easy uh, because of, you know, how culture and the transmission of ideas and practices happens in culture for us to get used to a way of doing things. And we need to constantly be vigilant about whether they're conducive of the right objectives.
0: I guess what I'm saying is I think that I'm seeing a broader concern and this is a piece of it. Yes. This is a piece of a broader concern that goes back further in protestantism and um so i'm contextualizing
2: it i think Um, Mm -hmm. yeah i think you're right and and i uh, think a
0: lot of it is just a response to the bible itself the bible itself is can feel kind of like a cold weird document that doesn't really have anything to do with your life I mean, look. If you look at the earliest letters of Paul, it, it appears you could reasonably conclude he thought Jesus was coming back very soon, and that didn't happen.
2: And yeah, we're here. We are two thousand years later, right now. Paul may have believed that, but he didn't teach that.
0: No, no, I'm not saying. But you're you're you know, slow down a little bit here. Well no, that's what I'm trying that. to
2: do is to yeah, is yeah. to slow it down. But but but, the but year the, year. I'm
0: trying to get you to connect with the emotion of that. The emotion is that 2000 nobody in the first century had mm-hmm. any idea that this thing was going to drag out and we're going to be going into space and the internet and you know
2: <laughs> the the nuclear weapons I um, think that by the time that was the Apostle foreseen. John uh, drafted the Book of Revelation, the youngest apostle, probably and the last living apostle, apparently uh, wrote late in life this book. And other apostles yeah. had already uh, passed on. Paul was no You're longer talking about the Revelation, the Book of Revelation, the yeah. the final book of the Bible, the the New Testament. And uh, I think that that John probably, he, you know, he knew that that expectation uh, was misplaced in a certain sense. I mean, the expectation that, that Jesus could um, return as promised any time was uh, appropriate. That was grounded in the teachings of Jesus himself. Right. But to uh, to be sure that it would happen during your, during your lifetime, uh, that would be another matter. And John could have been quite sure by the time he wrote the most prophetic book of the New Testament and one with great uh, parallels with old testament prophecy uh had to know that uh th- this was going to be a longer stretch than uh than that and i'm not sure we do know uh exactly what level of expectation uh existed in the minds of those people bear in mind that uh the you know th- they were living at a time after centuries of jewish hebrew tradition and uh there was the long uh expectation of the messiah coming the hebrew bible was closed uh 400 years i mean it was completed 400 years even before the arrival of jesus christ in fulfillment of messianic prophecy so that was a long time that the prophets uh yeah you know, and and the people who inherited their teachings uh waited and when jesus was on the earth some thought well this may be the messiah uh, John the Baptist even had questions at times about whether right. he really was the one, because yes. there had been others that were pretenders to that. Now I they know. they believed that there would be this authentic fulfillment of prophecy and expectation, but they wanted to be sure that Jesus was that. So I would say that in the first century, Lucas, there was a lot of uh, of a sense, a, a deeply embedded sense that God can take His time in these matters as long as He wants, really and uh what they hoped would happen during their lifetime might not happen during their lifetime because it certainly wasn't promised that it would that's a unique
0: perspective in my in my experience that's unique uh yeah. the sense i get is that almost every generation in church history thinks that jesus is about to come back and i think even christians now have a hard time thinking that there's another 2000 years ahead of us and it's already been 2000 years well but I, what, I mean i, I haven't all, done that yeah. i haven't done the empirical research but yeah. go back to the burden of proof on page 51 i think i see your fingerprints on this because <laughs> fine <laughs> i smell epistemology here uh-huh. got the burden of proof for for uh profits. and yes you now i guess we're going to get into some apologetics here this is uh kind of um a criteria, a set of criteria, right, for how to yes. tell who a prophet is. How Can you explain this part?
2: Yeah, so or, our right? main concern in that section of the book, in a section called The Burden of Proof, is that people today, you talk about how people, you know, expectations people have and what's culturally ingrained. One typical uh, sense of things for many people in the church, let's say, uh, whether they're right. in an, our church or not, is that if an individual prophesies, you should simply give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, prophecy, by the way, may be predictive or or not. The prophetic role in the Hebrew tradition. That's an
0: important point you just made.
2: Yes, it is. Because can you repeat that? Every, just for
0: can you just repeat it, just in case people missed it?
2: Yeah there there is predictive prophecy, and that's what many people today, using the English word prophecy, think of. Yes prophecy and that's all they think it is but right. there's more to prophecy than that uh prophecy in the hebrew tradition included just announcements of warning uh they weren't necessarily speaking of any future event whether long term or short term uh they were preaching and they were teaching what they had received as revelation from god so the prophet was god's spokesperson yes uh the one who received revelation for the community either living at the time, or uh, it could be the whole nation of Israel, or it could have uh, application to Gentile nations as well. But uh, some of it would be very contemporary, and it would be a call to repentance or to faithfulness to God, to have greater trust in him, a revelation about God's nature and his intentions and so forth for our individual lives. But it also included, of course, uh, an element of foretelling, of forecasting, of predicting, but now a prediction uh, is not the same thing as a prophecy. A legitimate prophecy, if there really is such a thing, is a prediction that is provi- that is grounded in something that God has revealed Himself. Right. So we make predictions. You know, when an election is about to happen, and pollsters are reporting on their uh, the stats that that they've uh, come up with in their polling individuals. Uh, The prognosticators will say, well, it looks likely that so-and-so will win, but maybe not by a very big margin, or uh, this candidate is likely to lose for these reasons, and so on. Those are predictions, but they're not prophecies, unless the individual making the prediction presumes to have received that knowledge from God himself. And so uh, prophetic predictions— uh, are are supposed to be like that. and there are examples of that in the New Testament uh, and and there's a whole book, as I mentioned before, of Revelation, which is the most recent prophetic book with uh, a fair amount of predictive prophecy in it uh, in that book, the, the Book of Revelation, in the New Testament.
0: Does the book of Revelation meet your criteria for a true prophet?
2: Yeah, well John was an apostle. And he had uh, known Jesus Christ. He was called an apostle by Jesus himself and authorized to write what he did. In fact, at the beginning of that book, the author claims to have received this uh, from an angel who received it from the son who received it from the father. So, uh, you know, now you could you could question, you could have doubts about whether that was really the Apostle John, the historic John, who knew Jesus personally. And that would be a question for textual critics and historians in the New Testament, But if we assume that he is the author, then he would have the relevant credentials for uh, functioning in that capacity. He would have that authority.
0: What about the book of Isaiah? What about the prophet Isaiah?
2: Yeah, the prophet Isaiah would also have received a special call. And uh, we don't always hear what uh, for the Hebrew tradition of prophets, uh, Isaiah being one of the ancient prophets of the Hebrew tradition, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and others— uh We don't always. There's, there's a
0: lot of weird things in the book of Isaiah.
2: There are a lot of weird things, and we don't. I mean, if you read other I, prophetic I th- books,
0: I think if you read Isaiah seven, for example, like yeah. I think you mentioned that as a fulfilled prophecy.
2: We do mention it in our book. Is that's true? We haven't.
0: Yeah, yeah, but it's not. <laughs> you just give one verse, and in chapter seven, and if you read chapter seven, it's it's not obvious exactly how that verse fits into the whole chapter let alone with chapter 9 chapter 11 well chapter that's true 40, it may not, it may 42, not be obvious. 45 right and somebody 49. could quibble
2: with our interpretation no, be... no, no no no
0: i'm not i'm not i'm not quibbling with your interpretation yes. i'm saying someone watching this in the future mm-hmm. might not understand how your criteria for prophecy fits even with the canonical books like with Isaiah, for example, I mean, or Revelation, that stuff has not happened. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, some of the stuff in Isaiah, it's not out. clear. Some of the stuff in Isaiah, it's not exactly clear what who, who's this virgin. That's true. It, it, you know, it's it's just not clear. It doesn't say exactly, and certainly, the um, Jewish people today don't think of that as predicting Jesus.
2: Well, some Jews do. I mean, some Jews are Christians as well. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that all Jews agree on that point, but uh, the the testimony of Jesus concerning the Hebrew Bible is uh, evidence that we have, not that uh, pre-Christian believers had, but that we have. Right. that it has the authority of God behind it. So right. there are two questions here, I think, that you've uh, alluded to, Lucas. One is uh, how to know whether a book is canonical, that is to say, belongs in the canon, because it was truly uh, a product of divine revelation. And then the other is an interpretive question about what a passage like Isaiah 714 actually means. in reference. Well, actually,
0: to- that's not really what my question was. I think my question was... How do you know that Isaiah was a prophet, a real prophet?
2: Yeah, and that was the first point I was making, was yeah. whether it's a it's a legitimate revelation from God. Now, I'm saying right. whatever you say for his contemporaries, we are not his contemporaries. We are the beneficiaries of the testimony of Jesus concerning the Hebrew Bible. Right. And so I have the advantage, and, and we have the advantage— of checking to see whether an individual who acquitted himself in the way that Jesus did as a prophet himself, uh, attested to the, uh, authenticity of the prophetic tradition of the Hebrew scriptures. And, and so we have that. And right. so I, I would rest my case on the, on the basis, uh, basis of his testimony. Okay. Then we had the separate question, well, why believe what Jesus taught about that? And as I mentioned, and how do you know what he taught? Himself. Yeah. Yes, so there you you...
0: go. That's where you go to the historical reliability, of the Gospels, stuff like that.
2: Yes, you have to do historical research, and you don't have to do it all over again. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. We've had, uh, you know, scholars focused on that as a as a discipline and a lifelong project um, for many years. So we learn from what they have to tell us about how to understand the history of the New Testament and whether we should uh, believe that we have a, a, an accurate record of the words of jesus okay so i mean we know
0: that god has called people to prophesy in the past Mm -hmm. does that still happen and if so how do we know if not how do we know
2: yeah so uh that's what the that's the burden of this chapter that you were referring to a moment ago and one part of that is the burden of proof a prophet needed to give evidence that he had received revelation from God. He couldn't just declare himself to be a prophet and then announce to the world what God was telling him to tell them. Uh, Moses, for example, is is a clear case in point. Moses was worried about that. God had given him a message to go and to declare to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and uh, and Moses was concerned, well, why would Pharaoh even listen to me? <laughs> and God enabled him to work uh, striking miracles in demonstration of his authority. Uh, likewise, when Jesus healed the paralytic, the first thing he did was, uh, this is a famous story in the Gospel of Mark, he, there are parallels in other Gospels, but I like the, the example in, in Mark chapter 2, the Gospel of Mark where he says to this man who's been paralyzed from his from birth or at least from early in life uh your sins are forgiven and uh that's a prophetic act that Jesus performs and it's an authoritative act uniquely uh, he's exercising a uniquely divine prerogative to to uh forgive the man's sins and for anyone who wanted to know whether he really had the authority to do that, he offered, in demonstration of that authority, his power to heal the man, which he did instantaneously. When he said, uh, "Get up, take your pallet, and go home," and the man did just that before an astonished crowd, including um, religious leaders who who knew the the implications of this. Mm-hmm. So um, this is this should be characteristic if we're trying to see. Uh, reason to believe that someone has exercised prophetic authority is that the the, the stamp of divine approval and uh, working in concert with them to corroborate their message uh, should be present. We'd like to see that sort of thing. Uh, and And what I was saying earlier is that all too often people will just take someone's word for it. And that's striking to me. It's remarkable to me that anybody would simply believe someone because he claimed to be a prophet of God without offering any evidence that, that 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 is what he is, except maybe that other so-called prophets have laid hands on him and they believe that he's a prophet. So we need more than that as evidence of of their prophetic authority. And then there are negative tests for their prophetic authority meaning that if they don't pass those tests then it's pretty clear that they're not prophets after all. And uh the test of um of fulfillment is a fundamental one in the Hebrew tradition and there's no indication that that test was ever rescinded by God and it's pretty uh, it seems common sense to me that God would not wish to w- rescind a test like that for a couple of reasons. <laughs> well Do you, you say what those are uh
0: sure but for a second there ha- doesn't isaiah f- fail the fulfillment test doesn't revelation f- fail that
2: no you would have a fail you would have a failure if what was predicted and prophesied uh did not come to pass as as prophesied so uh so you have to
0: get the interpretation right mm-hmm.
2: You do want to get the interpretation right as well, sure. Of course, to know that it was uh, whether or not it was fulfilled. Now, the more detailed a prophecy is, including details about when it should happen, when it will happen, give you more means of testing it, the fulfillment of it. So, if I were to claim to be a prophet and I uh, told you that uh, exactly one month from today, to the very minute, some event is going to happen you would have the means on that occasion when that moment rolls around uh to determine whether my prophecy was accurate or not but if i had an open ended prophecy that didn't give you an indication when it would be fulfilled then you would be uh it would be more difficult for you to be sure that uh i it was accurate or not now if you have open ended prophecies concerning the messiah And it's 400 years later or more when they are fulfilled.
0: Or if they're Uh, just not clear, like to people reading it. And sometimes they're not clear to people reading it later, a long time later.
2: Yeah. Well, here's an example that might interest uh, your audience, even Jesus Uh, predicted something that his disciples didn't fully understand until after it happened. Sure. Uh, When he said that uh, he was speaking of the temple, but he Mm -hmm. made a double reference, and it was the cleverness of Jesus as a teacher uh, in, in evidence once again, when he was referring both to his own body and to the temple in Jerusalem, that it would be destroyed and he could raise it again. And he even says in three days, Uh, The disciples didn't quite understand what that was about until after uh, they he was crucified and then later rose from the dead on the third day. And they said, oh, my gosh, that's what he was talking about. And so much fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy, I believe, was clearly uh, understood only when it was actually seen to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Yeah. But the expectation the confident expectation of the Messiah was present all along, and they had clues that would help them know from the pro- prophecies themselves, help them know when it was fulfilled, when the time came. And it could be that they might learn some things that they didn't understand fully when they were trying to make sense of it just on the basis of the prophet's own word.
0: So there's negative tests, and these are a definite no right these are tests fail this learn. once you're you're not a prophet right is right. that right and this is yeah. not being nitpicky you're not just being nitpicky no. about this how so? some someone could nitpick some of the stuff in the bible and you know, but no i'm not i'm not i'm just asking you know it's well
2: it's, they're welcome to do that of course and they should if they think there's a legitimate basis i wouldn't shrink from that at all is there a sufficient condition for being a prophet that's harder to say. I mean, okay. uh, a sufficient condition for being a prophet is different than a sufficient condition for being able to, to know that someone is a prophet. So a sufficient condition for being a prophet would be if God provided revelation to that individual. And uh, but I mean, for us to know problem. for us to know that. Right. So that's a different uh, question. Uh, right, 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 what right. are the sufficient conditions for us to know? Evidently, uh, you know, it we may assume that because we've received prophecy accompanying that prophecy will be um, sufficient conditions for determining whether or not the individual is a prophet well i don't know that that's the case but i think that if we're to be obedient to a command that's issued by a prophet we need pretty good evidence that they are that and a sufficient condition might sound like it has to be a guarantee Rather, it might be something that's more probabilistic and likely, given the evidence. It could be very likely, in fact, given the evidence that Jesus was a prophet. And, uh, and yet uh, you might think, well, but see, it's possible that he's not. And um, you would still act as if he did because that made sense, but you would allow for the possibility of being mistaken. So there is room for that, certainly when um, evaluating or assessing prophetic claims.
0: I think that's the heart of this episode right there is because, because some of the stuff you're, you're talking about, like the, the uh, end of the pandemic or, you know, the end uh, of Trump being reelected, some other things um, that will fade away in, in, in history uh new new people will come up and and it might be the case that this issue
2: comes alive for a new group, a new generation of kids yes, it will and yeah. uh and we're saying in the book that for our generation yeah uh, one of the things that we need to look at is the track record of uh, okay. supposed profits and keeping keeping tabs on it, yeah and keeping tabs on it and that was right. easy i mean that's easy there's no uh difficulty determining whether or not those who prophesied that trump would win a second term in 2020 uh were correct were correct when they did and of course they were not correct when they did uh we document how uh chris valentin for example predicted this prophesied right, it right. function literally uh operated as a prophet speaking for god in and that's dec-
0: how he interpreted himself
2: right yeah it was clear and that that's how mistaken. he was and he acknowledged yeah. it after Trump lost the the count. And right. then he was sort of scolded by some of his followers who said, you know, this is premature. Don't repent of your mistake. It may not be a mistake because it's being contested. He withdrew his apology, and then he had to later reissue his apology because uh, in, in the uh, final analysis, Trump was officially uh, – well, Joseph Biden was officially declared to be the president of the United States. And Trump was not sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office as predicted right yeah, so that that uh that's an indicator uh not only that uh well, it's an indicator of a couple of things, one is that Chris Valentin was mistaken, and he was not speaking for God in the way that he claimed when he said he when he said he was and uh and and he fails the fulfillment test, which was such uh a matter of importance in the Hebrew tradition. Uh, in the ancient Hebrew tradition, that if you failed that test, the divine penalty for that was death, because you couldn't be a spokesperson for God, get it wrong, and get away with it. He wanted a, a very strong deterrent in place uh, for that. So uh, it's he Valentin was altogether too casual about how serious his mistake was, speaking for God and then getting it wrong. And then saying, but that doesn't mean I'm not a prophet because he somehow looks for a loophole that prophets can make mistakes. And there are problems with believing that serious problems uh, with believing that. And unfortunately, people are falling for it.
0: The further we get back from this, people are going to look back on this and they're going to probably wonder what you don't really explain, which is why were they so excited about Trump being reelected? I mean that's that's a gaping like mystery when you read this book.
1: Many of them saw Trump as the person that would help them fulfill the Seven Mountain Mandate, the this revelation yes. that was given to many Nar prophets. That Let's talk about that, yeah, yeah. So this revelation, many Nar prophets claim to have received, that the way the church is to take the minion of the earth. So Nar, the re, the Great Commission has been redefined. It's not a commission to disciple individuals within nations it's a commission to disciple actual nations and so and so the great the seven mountain mandate is a revelation given for that apostles are supposed to rise to the top of these seven major societal institutions which they refer to as mountains Um, so like government media politics education you know these seven institutions and they rise to the top and then they can engage in the high level spiritual warfare that's necessary to cast out territorial spirits, demonic spirits that are believed to be ruling over these institutions, and then, and then, um, you know, through these institutions, they can bring God's kingdom to earth, and so, or bring heaven to earth, is another way they would say that. But um,
0: yeah,
1: and so that's the goal in this movement to to bring God's kingdom to earth under the leadership of apostles and prophets who claim to be giving critical new revelation. That will enable all believers, every believer, you know, to develop miraculous powers, to rise up and become part of this miracle working in time army that will will bring God's kingdom to earth and usher in Christ's return. And so Donald Trump was seen as he gave unprecedented access to the people in this movement, um, to the White House, to himself. And, um, you know, Paula White being his spiritual advisor, part of this movement. Um, you know, and and through her and and you know these leaders gained unprecedented access to Donald Trump, and they saw him as as someone who might help them in the fulfillment of this Seven Mountain mandate.
0: Well, I think you're freaking a lot of people out right now because Roe versus Wade has now been overturned. Mm-hmm. The Second Amendment is more firmly ensconced, um, and there's. Crucial First Amendment opinions that have been issued in in religion. Um, thinking of the Kennedy decision and then the West Virginia coal miners case, uh, the EPA case that came down uh, that helps uh, rail back the administrative state. If you if you look at the separation of powers as maybe a necessary condition for human flourishing, at least until the best you can do, because it's a fallen world God, you know that this this is why we have politics is because jesus has not come back we you you're really getting to the politics here because the question is is what is the purpose of of any political activity at all and i've always interpreted uh the concern about separation of powers which i think trump was very good at and i liked what he was what he represented on his fight for presidential power. And I would refer listeners to the episode I did with John, you, um, on his book, defender in chief for that. So you can just separate that out. And then also Philip hamburger's book on the administrative state. You want to look at those episodes. I'll link those episodes, but, um, you have this concern of human flourishing, right? I think that's really what the concern is. And then how, how best to bring that about. So the folks that hate Trump, they think he's uh, getting in the way of maybe a progressive vision of government by expertise uh, experts that are in the administrative state that don't run for reelection. People like Fauci who basically you know, spin out edicts and expect everybody to you know kowtow to them even though they they don't they don't represent anybody they've not they were not elected by anybody and you know there's a major fight over this and um um so how do you understand the seven mountains is it is is the seven mountains and bringing about god's kingdom uh linked up with that somehow
2: Well, let's just make one point. Uh, You're right. So much uh, governance does seem to fall to people who weren't, you know, elected officials, but they were given a platform by elected officials. Yeah. And uh, so much of what does transpire uh, through governmental channels uh, works that way, you know. So the American people are that much further removed from the decision makers and the policymakers and the implementers and enforcers, uh, because they didn't elect those people. Uh, it's the same with with the Supreme Court, you know, those people aren't elected. Uh, but elected officials have to uh nominate them and then confirm them to the court. So that's the connection that, you know, the the kind of remote connection that the electorate has uh, in a democracy in our democratic republic, anyway, for uh influencing and it's a massive nation with millions and you know millions and millions of people it's amazing that it works at all <laughs> as i yeah. think of it at times what could possibly uh, go wrong yeah what could possibly go wrong and of course the bigger that you get the bigger government gets almost inevitably unless you have you know uh measures in place to prevent that from happening and and one of the problems i think is that though um probably our forefathers who founded this nation, if we can use that term, the founding fathers, uh, you know, I think for the most part, they did envision more restrictive government than we actually have, but they probably didn't envision how big and and influential and, and so on the, this country would be either. So despite the ingenuity, the uh, clear ingenuity of the Constitution and yeah. the other founding documents, the Federalist Papers are marvelous. Um, it's, it's, a it's remarkable in a way that, um, government largesse was not, uh, curbed by certain provisions that, that might've been effective. I can't say I know what those would have been, but I, I regret that we have reached a stage where even our elected officials wield more power than they should. And that's a separate issue from the separation of powers even,
0: well, we're living in the shadow of the progressive movement, right? And mm-hmm. I think I interpret the New Deal as a p- key part of that. the The rat, the just incredible. It was part totally partisan too. It was totally Democrats that were growing. You know, the Social Security, the the regulation of the economy. Originally, Social Security was supposed to be: it's a bank account. We'll keep it safe for you. You'll get it back at the end. It's uh, the impression was it's still your asset. It's not an asset you can leave to your kids. And right now, kids are paying payroll tax and it's going directly to somebody else right now. It's totally unsustainable. So you have this unsustainable thing. It's two thirds of the federal budget, for example, it's 70%. And you've got that was done in the name of Christianity. I mean, FDR thought he was bringing God's gospel and the kingdom to earth that's how the progressives thought the christians That was the rhetoric anyway. I well I think you probably did believe that. And you that's might. why that that's why they they are so self-righteous about it. It's a, it's a religious spirit. That's one of those buzzwords. Mm. And that's the that was that's the concern that I've seen from these people is is that there's you know, I'm not saying that they're the great students of American government, you know, on either side. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was, that's main That's also my concern is that we're not really studying American government, but there, you know, I, I wanted to briefly go back to the emotional issues and the music. Mm. Cause you meant you made a big um, deal about the music and the emotions. I think people just want to have an emotional connection with, Something that feels very kind of distant. What, what do you think about that?
1: Well, well our, one thing I was going to say uh, is, is there's um our, our real concern about the music is that it's the number one draw to this movement. People all the time are telling us that the thing that drew them to NAR was the music. You know, they liked Bethel music. Uh, And then they started researching the church and then decided to enroll in the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. Uh, And, you know, so it's it's a big draw. And as we show in our chapter in our book, Counterfeit Kingdom on music, um their nar theology and buzzwords are laced throughout the lyrics of the songs and a lot of people don't realize that because they don't know the theology and the buzzwords but you'll start to see it when you learn it Mm -hmm. and bill johnson himself has said that he sees bethel music as a tool for planting and spreading bethel's teachings and practices to churches throughout the world and he's also said that uh this is a direct quote music bypasses all of the intellectual barriers and when the anointing of God is on a song, people will begin to believe things they wouldn't believe through teaching. And so there's a concern there that that Bill Johnson knows that that people wouldn't necessarily accept these uh, NAR teachings if they were just taught that. But when they're put to music. You know, it can bypass the intellectual barriers. He says, and then and then people start to believe things they wouldn't otherwise believe. And so, these are some real concerns we have about the music.
2: Yeah, and it's a distortion of how uh, Christians should think about grounding belief. You know, uh, bypassing the intellect is certainly not uh, God's idea. Who created created the <laughs> intellect? And uh, Jesus appealed to to the logic and the reason uh, in, in, when dealing with his opponents and so forth, he made arguments for goodness sake, he gave evidence. And that was typical of the apostles in their ministry in the book of acts as well. And yet here we have, uh, the senior pastor of a, of a globally influential church saying, let's cut to the chase here and just bypass that aim for the heart, forget the head. And, uh, we'll have more success getting people to buy into this. Hmm. Well, buying into it is not, um, is is not the whole story if mm-hmm. it doesn't include um ground well-grounded belief and that's what they fear is that people will bring these criteria to assess their claims and they'll be found uh wanting there's a great mythology for example about the miraculous happening Uh, in the world today and at at places like Bethel Church. And you were asking earlier uh, why why people are drawn to this, and Holly gave an excellent answer that's really just a partial answer. There are so many different things. She was mentioning the blessings that are promised as a result of participation. But uh, people believe the stories they're hearing uh, told about miracles – but they're not seeing them happen for themselves. Many people who've, uh, you know, been students in the program there, have graduated, have gone on to t- to try to replicate the same ministry in their own experience, have come to say, you know, th- 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 this really was a disappointment. Uh, th- they promised something that they didn't deliver. But people, uh, you know, in the yeah. uh, around the world think the mythology is true. And that's the power of a myth. Mm. Is that as it spreads, people think, oh, well, this must be really happening. And so <laughs> quite often um, I hear people say, well, there are things that I disagree with about what goes on at Bethel Church, but God is clearly doing a work there. And I like to ask, well, what are some things you disagree with? And they don't like to say. And the other is, uh, how do you know that God is doing a work there? Right. And they're kind of speechless. So uh, that's a concern that I have and the music is used as an emotional means of draw, drawing people and luring people and it's it's more serious than that because as you said lucas people are des- they do desire a connection with their creator he's a personal being yes. for goodness sake and he yeah. has a desire for fellowship with us and set conditions for fellowship now <laughs> part of our task as disciples is to learn what those conditions are and submit to them and then enter into that fellowship as he conceived of it and designed for it. But I think people are buying a, a, a dangerous substitute for what God intends when uh that's they when they roll with music that is not really in keeping with spirit and truth here as Jesus taught. And so th- that's that's part so, of the concern. And so and is it compare, is- their experience in their own churches And you were describing your experience in church, too, with what they believe about this mythology, about a place like Bethel. And then the music brings it home to them because their own churches are using the music. And that's causing these people to compare what is represented by the music and what they hear about this mythology with the reality of their own experience. And there's a disconnect and it builds within them a dissatisfaction with their own church it's boring it's uninteresting it's not lively they feel no connection with each other with god something's wrong here and so churches are actually shooting themselves in the foot marketing um, a substitute for reality and uh and causing this comparison to grow in the minds of their own people
0: well i've known and you noticed and you probably have too because you're both mature christians is the sense i get Uh, that different churches take on different personalities, like the Myers-Briggs almost. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a very emotional church. Um, but I am a thinker on the Myers-Briggs, but then a lot of the thinkers I've been around like at Biola seem like robots and -hmm. they're totally unaffected by emotionally stale experiences. Mm Mm-hmm and i don't know what the percentages are but i i suspect that a lot of these folks are feelers and that's how god made them yeah and so what you're saying is, that, is it was fair to say that you're saying that it's a legitimate thing to want the emotional connection yes and to feel it but you but this is a, a poor substitute
2: and it's going to uh it's not going to work Right, So you have to connect with the church with teachers and others who may not be feelers as much. They they don't have it doesn't follow that they aren't, but uh, they might not be uh, wired the same way, but they have insight into the scriptures that they can help uh, lead people so that we can bring our mind, our wills and our emotions into submission to the to the word of God and do things his way. In all three areas. Yeah. Okay. That's the challenge for us, is deciding. Yeah, that is
0: a lot. It's a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, this has been very
2: helpful for me. So uh, our lyrics should be theologically sound. You know, we I agree. As you notice, we say in the book that for many people today, um, in our Protestant evangelical churches in particular, music, uh, is the Catechism of the Church because people are hearing repeated and singing repeatedly yes. these lyrics, and many of them are not only kind of vacuous, but they're actually doctrinally unsound. Now, well, here, here, it's like, it's, like,
0: it's just like secular music. Like like David Noble wrote, he he founded Summit Ministries, and I went through yes. Summit Ministries. He wrote this book called "The Marxist Minstrels," wasn't exactly the New York Times bestseller. <laughs> but he made that point where he and I remember re- looking at that book when I was just a kid. I was like 15 and I was just like, man, this guy is really nitpicky about this stuff. He didn't like the Beatles. Yeah. You know, and he and he, and, and th- these are wildly popular. You know, he was really getting in there. Yes. And uh, he by the way, he he reminds me of the seven mountain thing because he has this book called understanding the times where it's 10 topics and there's the Christian view. And we want that view to prevail in government because that's the best for human flourishing. Well, anyway, I just wanted to make that connection.
1: But the thing with the seven mountain though thing in NAR is a It's not just, you know, we want, we want to influence these societal institutions. It's that only apostles have the authority from God to rise to the top of these institutions and do the spiritual warfare against these demons and cast them out. And then the church can take control of the institution. So it's very, so it's, you know, it's a yep.
0: structural thing where the church is actually now in charge of the government. Is that what you're saying? Yes.
1: Right. And apostles are pivotal to the fulfillment of this mandate in their governing authority.
0: Okay. I totally missed that. And I'm like hanging out, hanging, having cigars with Lance and he wrote the dang book. And I missed that. I, it never <laughs> well, you it, had other things to just, talk just about. The stuff that, no, no. I mean, we did talk about it, but I never got the impression that you just gave right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. so That's my personal experience.
1: Yeah. Right? Well, if you get into a lot of times, if you get into actually, you know, um, really re- watching all the teachings, reading all the books of these leaders, these, right. these things do come out. No, um, I, tr-
0: I trust you. Because I'm not going to do that work and you've already done it (laughs) and your work is not wasted. Um, I'm just add I'm adding to it the 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 dissonance that some people might feel um, because absolutely personal experience doesn't quite match the um, the top down uh, authoritative uh, use of those terms.
2: Right. And this is why we you know, it would be in the category of the anecdotal if yeah. we had private conversations with people like that and we reported on what took place in a conversation. It's less so when we can say, here are some public sources, their their yeah. books, articles they publish and then messages they put, you know, that are on YouTube or what have you. And so we think that that's a better gauge. Um and a more reliable indicator of what they believe about these things, they can always withdraw. Of course. I mean, they could say, well, I don't believe that anymore. Here's what I believe now. And here's why that
0: also might be uh, a, a thing that could be qualified in person. If, if, if there was a conversation, for example, to be had that might be able to be qualified. I don't know. Uh, Cause I know that sometimes people can misunderstand each other and talk past of each course. other. Yes. But you know, it's, it's hard with so many sources that you're tracking. Um, and you really have, I don't know how you could have done better on this because it's, mm-hmm. it's very well documented and you were going to say something else.
1: Oh, I was just uh, one video I I watched recently uh, that was showing some of Lance's teaching and Lance Lance was talking about how he was at uh, he was at in some meetings recently with an organization called Hub Nation. If you go to Hub Nation's website, they're overtly NAR, but he said that they've created an apostolic hub that's a thing in NAR, apostolic hubs, uh, for each of the seven mountains of the seven mountain mandate. And so he was talking about how great this was that they've created these apostolic hubs for each of the seven mountains. This is in line with NAR theology. And he also claimed that, you know, gold dust supernaturally appeared on him during this meeting. There were angels in the room. And he was talking about how the angels are bored because they have assignments to give Jesus his inheritance. And they're not, you know, they're not, I guess, believers aren't keeping upon. them busy. That's a common teaching in NAR actually is that angels are bored, you know, because, because believers aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, keeping them busy, bringing about revival and that kind of thing but um, so yeah he's he's talked specifically though about this need for apostolic hubs in relation to each of the seven mountains, and there's a lot of teaching um to be found by by him about about those things
2: well, this, this is this Lance language all now in... is that who you were referring to? Yes, now, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah okay, mm-hmm. yeah, senior <laughs> there's
0: two of them uh the <laughs> junior was my student at Pepperdine. um so The the angels and demons, what happened with that in the New Testament? I mean, they just drop off the map here. What's going on in your minds about angels
2: and demons? Most of what we know about angels and demons, I would say, we know from Scripture. And uh, others would say, well, we know a lot more than what the Scriptures tell us because of our encounters with angels and uh, of course one question is uh you know what does an encounter look like how do you authenticate it yes and then when you testify concerning it why should anybody else believe it i don't mean to be automatically suspicious that's just a an epistemic question you know uh if if uh you're telling me this because you expect me to believe it then i need to know why um that makes sense and just hearing it is maybe not sufficient so Uh, I like to connect reports up with what we think we know about angels from Scripture and maybe what implications we think those passages have regarding the ontology or metaphysics of angelic beings and what kind of activity they're engaged in and so forth. But a lot of claims are being made about angels today that you just can't corroborate by appeal to Scripture, And yet uh, people probably wouldn't believe that there were angels if they didn't have revelation concerning that like we do in in the Bible. Um, Angels have a relatively inconspicuous uh, presence in Mm -hmm. uh, the Bible, Old and New Mm -hmm. Testaments. They show up on special occasions. But they are truly remarkable, like, the, you know, at the announcement of the birth of Jesus or his, at, uh, of the uh, conception of Jesus or at his birth or, um, you know, at his resurrection. The, the, these are <laughs> remarkable, uh, crucial moments when they have they, they show up in ways that are not typical. And uh, you see them even less often in the in the book of Acts. So it isn't as if, uh, you know, we should think that they're not real or that they're not active and that there isn't an important world of activity going on. But I don't trust a lot of the claims that are made about um, what angels are doing and how we can exercise authority to leverage their power and release them uh, from their right. kind of um right. You know, inactive, passive state, and get them involved in things that matter, uh, that we that we care about, and so on. Um, Well, why
0: would they be inactive, though? I mean, I think of it kind of like, forgive the very crude analogy, but like the Peanuts, you know, Franklin, the black kid in Peanuts. Yeah, it's almost like you get a sense that there, well, black people exist. There's one right there, and and but in the Peanuts. Narrative, they're not prominent, but it is a window into a larger reality that black people exist, and and so a lot I think a lot of folks uh, feel like um, the the picture of angels in the Bible is like that, yeah, that there is an unseen realm that and it is a window into that realm, and how could it be otherwise? Same with demons.
1: Well, and in NAR, you know, they have very distinctive teachings about, for example, Chris Feliton actually says that um, angels will fulfill the prayers, uh, prayer declarations, the prayer declarations of those who are submitted to apostles. And so and that those who aren't submitted to apostles won't have their prayers answered. And there's a lot in NAR about uh, making apostolic decrees, you know, that that apostles have the authority to commission angels and send them out on assignments and and things like that. So it's a very distinctive theology about angels in NAR. Um, so it's not just an issue, of, you know, are there angels today? And of course there are. But but they have these very distinctive NAR teachings about angels and and the importance of apostles in commanding them and sending them out and coming under their authority so you can have your prayers answered by angels
2: and because uh, he's a prophet we're supposed to simply believe him because this is not revealed any other place you know so we have to take his word for it and yet he's a discredited prophet because of his own failed prophecies
0: is there a list of the prophets or apostles somewhere
1: Well, there's not, because it's not a, you know, a single organization, there's not like one list somewhere. We, we list a lot of names in our books. Um, so how do you know if you're
0: submitting correctly? I mean, that, that word submission just doesn't fit with my personal experience, but like, um, But how do you like assuming you're you're just going by the public documents and not like firsthand eyewitness? Well, you would defer
2: to them if you're a member of the church, a church that's NAR and you have an apostle and a prophet.
0: But I mean, if there's not a list, you know, like there's a list of the popes and stuff. And it's not like
2: that. It doesn't work like that. It's more at the local level. And you, you know, uh, you don't have to. It's decentralized. It is decentralized in a certain sense, yes, but like I said, they do collaborate, they network, they have network official organizations that network with each other, but there's not a clear hierarchy of apostles and prophets, and, uh, you know. There's no list of of them anywhere. Well, there's
1: also, there's apostolic networks, so churches will voluntarily join an apostolic network, like the Bethel Leaders Network, so that the pastor can come under you know, their spiritual authority. Um, I believe Rick Joyner has his own apostolic network. Um, if I'm not mistaken. So it's, uh, so people will want to come under the authority of a particular apostle, like say Rick Joyner or Bill Johnson or Randy Clark. And so they'll join their apostolic networks. And that's seen as, as they're coming in proper alignments. Is that that a financial thing? Sometimes some of the networks, uh, like I believe Cheon's network, I mean, there's tens of thousands of churches globally that join his network. They actually that. give a percentage of their, they're encouraged to give a percentage of their tithing. Um, gotcha. Other networks, like the leaders will pay an annual fee to be part of it, that kind of thing.
0: So it's like the Anglican church. We're we're supposed to give uh, 10% to the, the diocese.
1: Except they're apostles, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Except the leaders of the Episcopal Network are apostles, yeah. Bishops, you know, mm-hmm.
0: you know, there's these words that a lot of people don't know know what these words really mean. And a lot In of practice, people don't know that yeah. their
2: money is going to these things either. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Rank and file members of churches are sometimes surprised when they, they learn how the money is being, um, Allocated to those, and countries. also
1: there's the issue of so NAR NAR leaders teach that there have been truths that were lost by the church and needed to be restored, and so they teach that starting with the Protestant Reformation, God has been successively restoring truths that have been lost to the church. So NAR leaders believe word of faith teachings um, about our words creating reality are those truths. They also believe prosperity gospel teachings are truths that were lost by the church and had to be restored. Because the prosperity gospel is seen in NAR as essential because there's going to be this great end time transfer of wealth from the wicked to the to the apostles to the righteous. So they have the funds needed to bring God's kingdom to earth. And so so what I'm trying to say is that within NAR, there's this prosperity gospel beliefs that if you give more to the leaders, the apostles, you will receive more. You will be blessed in return. You will personally receive more blessings. And so that also comes into this.
0: Okay. So, a lot of this is is maybe a hasty look at Scripture without really thinking about it. So would you say that's fair for the rank and file?
2: Well, I think that error comes in in, in at least three ways. Um, one is that passages of Scripture are simply misinterpreted, and uh, okay, and then and then not consistently applied, even and on I, that. Scripture. And I
0: know that you have this. Uh, you have a section on the passion translation which is itself worth the price of the book
2: (laughs) yeah they have their own uh translation uh, a a favored it's not a translation though it's not a translation but it is called that by its uh its uh uh translator (laughs) brian simmons wants it to be known of as a translation but it is not it's not even a very good paraphrase certainly not reliable and it's the most edited modern so-called translation that you you might find um okay. but anyway that that is a po- a good point that they they do that but
0: i think that that should have been chapter one
2: yeah well it could have been
1: uh yeah they take nar teachings and they just put them right into the text just well
0: I, yeah that's what i was saying is the all of it, wake up one that's a fine chapter but the 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 one on scripture yeah, you know, I'm I'm sorry, I'm I'm nitpicking the the table of contents, but when I got to that part, I was like, why is this not chapter one? Uh-huh. This should be front and center. But yeah, but just FYI, everybody listening, go to the section on the passion translation.
2: Yeah, yeah, we give examples of how Brian Simmons has interpreted a passage and not very well and then rendered it as if it was a, a uh, an actual translation when it's more of a, a yeah. product of interpretation and paraphrase. And then it's also- I was got- cringing
0: the entire time I, I read that chapter. I was just cringing.
2: Oh. Right. Yeah. So it's not as if they won't use other translations. Uh, NAR leaders won't use other translations. Oftentimes they cherry pick the translations to get the language that they want. I was reading a book about declaration prayer yesterday. And uh, they used a passage from the book of Job where Eliphaz is uh, addressing Job. And um, we don't even know that what Job's so-called friends said is uh, supposed to be believed as divine truth in all cases. But here is Eliphaz saying, you know, what you decree will happen. And so they like this word decree, but the ESV doesn't even use the word decree there. Um, So they wouldn't want to use the ESV for that passage, but they might find it convenient to do so for a different purpose uh, and a different part of the Bible. So that's often done as well. And I think that's unfortunate. It's kind of a red flag when uh, you hopscotch through translations to cherry pick the ones that say it just the way you want it to come across for your own purposes. It's very tempting. (laughs) <laughs> there's all tempting. these
0: there's all these translations. look at all the options,
2: but one error yeah. then is simply uh misinterpretation and and like I said, going with that, you might interpret it a certain way and then it doesn't really pan out in practice. so I'll give you an example right, right, you right, want right. one uh in sure. John fifteen twelve Jesus is saying to his disciples in the upper room that the works that you've seen me do, you will do also in greater works than these. Yeah. Well, the word in there is the word ergon, which is the plural for works translated mm-hmm. in English. It's not the word miracles, though it could refer to miracles. That's a, That would be an interpretation. The yeah. Passion Translation interprets it as miracles. Bill Johnson has said from the pulpit that it has to be miracles. There's nothing else it could possibly be. Well, he's simply wrong about that. Even if it is miracles in Jesus' intention, there are things he could have meant by it that need to be considered. And uh, we think that if you want to know the facts, look at the book of Acts, uh, you know, to see if, in fact, um, the works that they did were restricted to miracles and if they actually right. outstrip the miracles of jesus well i but think it's, it's the
0: same not, word as uh faith without works is dead it's the same word or ergon is is the word for works there, ergon
2: right? is the word exactly and so it can mean different things and you have to study it in context
1: right. you can't
2: just flippantly make it mean miracles if jesus didn't say uh the equivalent of that but that's what they'll do and then yeah. here's here's the clincher if they really believe that they will do greater works than Jesus, then their miracles ought to be at least on par with his, at least as good and as impressive as his, and generally they're not, and uh that would be prophetic as well. well, that's why
1: that's a list I was reading earlier. Rick Joyner was saying that things they will do greater you know than than Jesus did were those those examples I gave
2: but one of the well, great tests is their miracles, I mean their miracles of prophecy jesus was a prophet but he never got it wrong and he wouldn't have if he was a legitimate prophet but here they are supposed to be equal to jesus in what they can accomplish miraculously and supernaturally and Mm -hmm. yet uh, they can't even get it right when um you know it comes to the trump election and prognosticate i mean look prognostication is not prophecy and uh I've I've gotten a lot of things right too that I've predicted, but I've never claimed that they were prophetic. And it it would be inappropriate for me to do that. And you can tell that's in, inappropriate when it doesn't come to pass. So anyway, that's the first mistake. Another way that error creeps in is in their use of the Bible in another way, where they uh if you're an apostle, you might be reading a passage of scripture and the 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 Holy Spirit will breathe on the pages or on the word, and you'll receive a different sense of the meaning of the passage that you wouldn't uh, become aware of otherwise. So you're receiving revelation from the Spirit directly and subjectively in tandem with reading propositional revelation in the form of scripture and then you can go and you can declare that to other people who would never know it otherwise apart from your experience
0: and it would be inconsistent with the well it wouldn't the be sense of the word?
2: it wouldn't yeah it either might be inconsistent or it wouldn't be taught in the scriptures you couldn't test it in other words okay uh, against what the word says because so that's
0: kind of like the living uh constitution uh to bring it back to mm. like interpretation. Were, except
2: it has divine authority because it was revealed by by the spirit of god the practice course, is referred allegedly. to as
1: prophetic illumination they claim that they receive prophetic illumination into passages of scripture
0: well when you talk to uh so-called progressives that are divining the the meaning of the constitution yeah. they 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 talk with religious zeal about the how the commerce clause ought to be rendered or something
2: yeah, it, it's and it, they it's presume like to psychoanalyze the original authors too, right? Yeah, like well, well, they were you are
0: making a point about the meaning of a text. The yes. meaning of a text is is what it meant at the time. Yes. Right? The public under publicly understandable meaning. And I I'd like to con- connect that if you don't mind with a, just a broader point about institutions because this is a concern I have with this movement based on firsthand experience. Is that there seem they seem to be untethered with uh, institutional uh, knowledge like for example, I see the problems with uh, the predictions of American government is they're they're just not studying this stuff and I mean I was I was uh, teaching uh, logical fallacies there at Morningstar, but I didn't get the sense that they were serious students, and I was kind of an aberration. Like, I was the one connection they had with like a, you know, institutional memory of this stuff. Like you come from Biola and full uh, partial disclosure, not full, but I was your student, Doug. I was student in your epistemology class and your philosophy religion class. I was your TA. One of my lectures. Well, say that part again. Say
2: that one part. (laughs) (laughs) Oh full disclosure
0: (laughs) yeah so but um you were the lack of even any translators at all like that would be familiar with greek and hebrew like i remember remember you when i was reading through this you quote craig blomberg and he was the last guest i had on this podcast and he was my former professor
2: yes at denver and
0: that's what i mean is that a lot of the churches that you and I are familiar with are, they have a link with these scholarly communities that, that know a thing or two about translating and the, the kind of translations that we have that would be able to easily, you know, I mean, it was no problem for Craig to, to see the problem with the passion translation, you know, I mean, that's, that's a really basic thing
2: yeah
1: yeah but leaders mm-hmm. in this movement have a, a a real disdain for christian um for theologians for scholars for academia they would say that that that's a greek that's a greek mindset to use an r buzzword it's not a hebrew mindset so, and it's, so would you say
0: it's it's anti-intellectual holly would yes
1: yeah in fact in in yeah they would actually see it as demonic that the uh the Greek mindset is a demonic mindset that values critical thinking and reason and things like that thing. And so, um, yeah, there's a real disparaging of, of, um, theologians and scholars.
0: That's really bad. And I think that that might be, that's the new main point of this whole episode is, um, that's, that's really bad. The the anti intellectual. And that's exactly what Mark Knoll was pointing out in the scandal of the evangelical mind. Right. Yes. I mean, you know, it, he was like, this is embarrassing. And that was back in 94. He was pointing that out, you know, and by the way, Doug, I was oh, reading your yeah. book on in defense of miracles while I was deployed. I found it recently. And I know when I was reading it based on the bookmarker, because I had a note from my wife, not allowed to say her name on this podcast, but, but I have a note from my wife saying, uh, don't get air sick. And that meant that I was, and I wrote a little note saying I was flying an operation off of Kauai or something like that. So I was reading it while I was doing uh Navy operations there in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And I remember you
2: telling me that,
0: and that's before I knew you personally. Yes. And, but it was so comforting to me. Now I'm a thinker on the Myers-Briggs, but it was so comforting to me to think that uh, the churches I was connected to had these institutional links to a broader uh, group of people that their whole job was to really drill into this stuff and get this stuff right. Because I I remember being very strengthened reading that book. I didn't understand a lot of it, but I was like, I could tell you knew what you're talking about. And that gave me a lot of strength, emotional strength. Now, a lot of the folks that I know that are feelers, they don't have the patience to dig through a book like that. Maybe they don't have the attention span or they don't have uh, the training maybe, or, or they just don't have the confidence and they don't draw emotional strength from academics like I did. And so I can understand that real temptation to, to look for um, any kind of emotional strength. And I can understand why if you're feeling it in a song or in an encounter or with the rhetoric, that can be very alluring.
2: Yes, that's true. And we've talked with people, counseled even with people who've left NAR churches and they feel out of sorts. They don't quite know how to recalibrate their spirits uh, after being sort of trained in a certain way of experiencing the a relationship with God and Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that experience isn't, a rich experience isn't possible, and intimacy with God is not possible, but it's going to be different. It's going to look different. And uh, I, I think that one of the great keys to intimacy with God and the experience side of it is, uh his actual discipleship and obedience to the commands of christ and when you seek to be obedient to his will that's when you discover what you even find greater confirmation of the truth of his message that way it's an amazing thing Um, but life just begins to feel different in in a positive sense if you actually exercise faith and obedience to jesus because his commands are not grievous and uh his yoke is easy and light uh it's meant to for our flourishing but you know we come to we come to god with our own expectations for relationship and we stipulate what it should be like and what it should look like and how it should feel and uh and and that he may not be as accommodating as we want him to be and we should really try to learn uh from him uh what okay. that should look like and what it takes to get there.
0: Go into all nations making disciples. Go go into all nations making disciples, right? Of all nations. How do you understand that
2: command? Well he goes on to say, uh teaching them to obey what I have commanded. <laughs> well there's definitely
0: that, that's submission. That's submission, yeah. But go and uh, make disciples of all nations. How do you understand that?
2: Oh of all nations. He's talking about uh you know, get out there and and spread the word among the nations. He's not talking about government entities or nation states. He's talking about generations of people and ethnic groups. So he's really talking about discipling individuals because the model, he's already demonstrated the model in his uh, mentoring of those men himself. Now he's commissioning them to go and do the same thing that uh he has done in their midst, and that is on an individual basis, and the church the church is is the ordained institution that, that God has um intended to um be the means of gathering a people together during this interval of time to fulfil his will collectively and to enable each other to do so individually and uh so he illustrated so it's a, it's that, a bottom it up it's it. a
0: bottom up cultural movement it's not top down it's not the word nation is the greek word is ethnos
2: right and it
0: means it's where we get our word of the ethnicity yes. it's an it is kind of an odd word but it's in english it kind of means the same thing when you refer to the indian nations for example in the constitution or you know like in the constitutional law where it refers to like the comanche nation or well, uh, remember, he's speaking
2: to to Jews. The, the, these men were all. Everybody else uh, was the nations. <laughs> they were all Orthodox Jews could and be Gentiles. Yeah, uh, they had this understanding, and it was grounded in reality. Of course, that they yeah. were the people of God, Israel. I think
0: Goyim. Them. I think Goyim is is translated ethnot with the ethnos Greek word in the Septuagint. I'm not totally sure, but I think it's that I'll same be, idea of of the Gentiles, right?
2: Yes, the idea was that this goes beyond just your own comfort zone and your own people group. This is going to be a global movement. And uh and you're supposed to be a witness to all the nations, all the world. And some will believe and some will not believe. But the teaching them to obey, though. Teaching it also says
1: baptizing obey. them too, which shows that right, right. you don't baptize nations, you baptize individuals.
2: Yeah, we're not talking about a national entity it were t- as the target of this ministry. We're talking about individuals who are uh members of different nationalities uh-huh. than uh the the Hebrew people were and the people of Palestine were. And then we see it we see it happening in the book of Acts. I mean the execution of this begins immediately after the day of Pentecost uh which is recounted in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Which is a historical book about the first um, thirty plus years of the church, and uh, there you see them discipling, gathering b- uh, believers together into churches, but n- they're not converting the nations where it's top down. You know, go not yet, go convert <laughs> yet. the governors. And-
0: well, that that's that's what I love about this book is it gets into so many fundamental things about canonicity, church history. I mean, it's coming, right? the The issue of the relationship of government and Christianity, and sometimes yeah. it is top down. It feels like it's top down. If the if the nation's leaders are converted,
2: well, certainly that could yeah. happen, right? I mean, it could happen. Sometimes, all, we, entire
0: tribes, entire families became that's Christians. been
2: known to happen in around the world. That's been known to happen, right? And uh, you know, uh, we haven't talked about what you know, was true of the founding fathers and mothers of this country. But, uh, you know, Christians have been a major um, demographic from the beginning, and uh, culturally influential as a result, even if this was never a country founded as a an overtly christian nation right christian culture has always been a dominant culture if not the dominant culture until more recently and this is a concern to christians of course and and uh naturally um christians should uh exercise their privileges living in a democratic republic it's pluralistic to be sure and we are interested in an ordered liberty for all people and some people will have different views, and they will vote differently than we do, but uh certainly we have options that other people do not have living in other parts of the world, but we have a constitution, and we uh and a rule of law and it would be wonderful to see uh you know the church have greater influence through the voting and the representation as Christians even become uh elected officials. That's very but helpful to hear. So you're something.
0: not Anabaptist. You don't think we should depart or withdraw like like the fundamentalists
2: did? Not I myself don't, no. But I that's don't. A good, well, that's a
0: good qualification to get because some folks might hear this and hear you think that you're very concerned about any Christian uh, influence in politics.
2: Yeah. No, not at all. I think that we we have that. Well, first of all, just as citizens of this country... We are entitled to the same representation and the same uh, influence that others have, and uh, what, but what I kind think of, what we, kind of
0: influence are you talking about, though?
2: Well, we have values and and beliefs that, about human flourishing and things that we think would would help uh, the would be contributory to the common good, even if now the concept of the common good. You're can talking about persuasion. Different. But we have to do it by means of persuasion. Okay, yes. that's
0: what I was trying to get at. Yeah.
2: Yes, and we need I'd... to do it through proper channels, and be law-abiding citizens. And even these things are taught in Scripture. Romans thirteen, for example, uh, speaks of how within the providence of God, uh, the go- the nations are governed by those whom He permits. And uh, Paul told Timothy that we need to pray that we will for our leaders, so that we will be able to exercise our faith in liberty and that we'll be able to and to to pray for the blessing of the people that we're a part of, the the nation that we're uh, in company with. So there are some general guidelines. They're not very specific, and we're not told how to vote on all the issues, of course. But I think that-
0: We got to go by general revelation too, right? And that's a distinction that may be lost on some of the folks in this movement, because it seems like they just want all special revelation and they don't they don't study the general revelation, which is also there for us to learn A
2: natural law, you know, that's what I mean. Yeah. That we natural have, law. you know, that we can appeal to people don't need to agree with us about the authority of scripture to find common ground. Last night I was attending a, hmm. uh, I went to the, the Brea improv, which is a, a comedy, uh, house, yeah. you know, in my hometown in California. And, uh, is your
0: daughter performing there.
2: Uh, she was, in fact, performing there and she was the wow. MC for the event. But uh, one of the other entertainers uh, was t- uh, saying she, she made a joke that I thought probably did reflect her views and maybe the views of many people today about, um, you know, abortion as if if you believed if you were pro-life, then you were probably a religious person. Well, there might be some kind of empirical basis for thinking that was likely, but that's not necessarily true. There are plenty of reasons to be pro-life that have nothing to do with anything that the Bible says, and uh, this was completely lost on this individual. Uh, That's probably
0: because this individual, in their own
2: experience, has never encountered a a non-religious pro-life person. And they may not have. Yeah, they probably haven't. And and maybe, uh, you know, that's not well known to a lot of people that a, non, a non-religious secular basis. It's possible. Being pro-life. Because if you're pro-choice, you also are pro-choice in part because you believe in the dignity of of persons and, uh, and, and autonomy. You want them to be able to be self-determining to some extent. Now, that's limited to... If it comes down to a choice between the the fetus or the the mother who's carrying the child, uh, they they might privilege the mother's own dignity over that of the child. But you see, there's still this common ground even with the person who is affirming pro-choice that uh, human beings have dignity. Now, now in our view of things, that dignity is tethered to the um, values that have transcendent uh significance because they are rooted in the character of god but a secularist might believe in dignity as well and for similar reasons not exactly the same reasons but similar reasons um be pro-life so did you use the are you connecting general revelation
0: with secularity or
2: no i'm just saying that uh that in we have other sources of knowledge and means of grounding reasonable belief apart from the bible of course and we have beliefs about many things that are not touched on in scripture and then many things that are but that we can think about using the the data of scripture but also other things as well logic evidence you know human conditions for human flourishing i mean what does maximize human flourishing I happen to think that the marriage between a man and a woman raising their children together is uh, a wonderfully uh, designed means of fostering values that benefit society and individuals. And I think that we can make that argument without making a religious argument. But I think you could have religious reasons as a member of a democratic society To vote the way you do, even if you can't persuade people that are not religious, using your religious um, sources.
0: Why would it be that it's mainly religious people making those arguments? Then, do you think? Because a lot of the people I talk to, there, that's they're hung up on that. They they feel threatened.
2: Well, I'm not even sure it's true. It might be the majority who are pro-life that are religious. But or, uh, or
0: the same sex marriage thing,
2: too. same like, yeah. exactly, and in on a, on a whole range of issues, right. you could make Gun secular control. arguments yeah. for things that many religious people believe. But because it's yes. it's more natural to the religious point of view to believe some of those things that there's less diversity among religious people on those points. People make the mistake of thinking that the arguments are all purely religious when they're not. And that's just a mistake. So,
0: you guys might agree with the to use your term "nar" uh, people. With on some political things, but uh, you you think that it's very important to point this stuff out in your books, Counterfeit Kingdom, Broadman mm-hmm. uh, and Holman Press. Is it Broadman and Holman? Yes um 2022 right
1: mm-hmm. it's BH, November. yeah it's H publishers okay and um yeah and and just to clarify the term new apostolic reformation was a term that that it's leaders in this, move, this movement actually came up with
0: that's their term not your term that's
1: their term now not all of them ex- now use that term and some who did are now you know erasing that from their website or not using the term anymore but but that okay. was a term they came up with not us
0: Gotcha. Okay, so um, thank you. <laughs> so <laughs> this term, which is their term, and you you have just reported it, um, you you might agree about a whole host of, um, policy things, but you're you're saying that we really need to do this the right way, and this is going to hurt people. You're worried about the harm. Yes, and you're trying to prevent that harm.
1: Yeah, we hear. I mentioned earlier we receive letters really daily from people's talking about spiritual abuse they experienced under apostles. Um, the disillusionment with the Christian faith because of of promises that were made, of healings that never panned out, of prophecies that were never fulfilled. People deconstructing in their faith and walking away from their faith. Um, I've
2: seen that a lot.
1: Yeah, people feeling all-
2: defeated too because they think that there's something wrong with them if they're not experiencing yeah. what other people are reporting and they don't, they they're doing it the understand. wrong way. Yes. Yeah. And
1: division churches are splitting left and right from this movement. Very and families, common. Yeah. Kids, kids going off to Bethel school, of supernatural ministry and then never talking to their parents or extended family again, you know, and they're, I mean, it's, there's a lot of heartache that is coming from this movement.
0: Well, some folks might assume what you're doing is de- divisive. <laughs>
1: They <laughs> do say um, that, yes. but you know,
0: I mean, the, the, again, here we go back to church history, and mm-hmm. that's why I'm using my church history textbook from Wayland Baptist University in Hawaii. Uh, wonderful class, Doctor David Howell. Um mm-hmm. I, I loved taking church history in seminary, and and because Jesus says He wants His disciples to be uni- unified, and that seems to be the exception in two thousand years. And my Catholic friends say, we've never been more divided, you know, and of course they're talking about all the Protestant denominations they can't keep track of. And
1: Well, what breaks the unity though, is false teaching. You know, there's, we cite this verse sure. at the beginning of that's our what, book. That's what
0: everybody says
1: and, the whole time. But, <laughs> but you know, and Paul said, in Romans, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. And yeah. you know, when people when people introduce new and novel doctrines that have not been followed like this through the history of the church that are causing damage, and then other people point them out and say this is damaging, and they go, oh, you're causing division. No, no, it's not the people <laughs> pointing them out who are causing division. It's actually the people who have introduced those those beliefs that are not supported by scripture.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, but my, I'm kind of, you're, you're correct. I agree with you on that but my, my i'm just pointing out that it just the what people notice is that we are extremely divisive as people and everybody wants to justify why they're being divisive i mean it's always a good reason right in your own mind um right but to how, see, to you also... say
1: that you have to follow an apostle or prophet or be outside of god's will that's inherently divisive. And, and it, you know, it doesn't leave, leave people with a choice. That's, that's their teaching.
2: And ostensibly we have something in common that should be a source for uh, a meeting of the minds. It should be a point of contact for meeting minds and that's scripture, but through in, in various ways, that authority, the authority of scripture for them is kind of muted and, and, and um, subverted, undermined by the authority that they credit to apostles and prophets. And people are much more intent on hearing, you know, what the prophets and the apostles have to say to them personally and for our time, because they can't discern the will of God from a book that's 2000 years old even uh in its most recent books its most recent portions so um
0: what does that say though about us as people that we we tend to be so divided all the time
2: well it's a consequence of living in a fallen world I mean, relationships are messy and hard work the closest relationships we have the most meaningful relationships we have with the people we love the most are messy at times. And yeah. we live we live in a in an age where, you know, and yeah. And, you know, it would be wonderful if we could all get along, <laughs> <even> whether we <laughs> agreed or not, if we could if we could at least get along better than we do. I, I marvel still like I said earlier, that we get along as well as we do, that we are as unified as we are. That's an interesting this point. This country is amazingly polarized and it's almost evenly split down the middle. Um, and 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 I mean, radically polarized. You got the far left and you got the far right. You've got things in between. but. Um,
0: and then you've got the correct people like me.
2: Like you. Yeah, exactly. So and if everybody would just listen to you, Lucas, it would be such a better world, right? Yeah, exactly. But th- th- this is how. What's it wrong is. with you? What's wrong with I you? I do people? wonder what our future is as a country. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't know how to. Im- I can't even imagine really um, a, 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 an outcome. I don't even mean a good outcome. I, I. I can imagine certain ways things could turn out, but there, there is no clear massive tilt only on one side now it does feel to people people on both sides feel like they're being marginalized and uh and Hmm. they talk about that and i'm concerned about the victim mentality i don't think believers should have that that mentality at all you know and and feeling persecuted and downtrodden and unfairly treated and all that we we shouldn't expect much different than that in the world people have competing interests and we are largely selfish in our pursuit of them all of us have that inclination so uh, i think that what god has done over over the m- many centuries of human experience is demonstrated that under one or uh social governmental arrangement after another Uh, When humans uh, are calling the shots, it's not working out very well. And uh, we have a longing in our heart for something different and greater than this. But no utopian can be produced by human engineering. It's just not going to happen. Our only salvation will be ultimately if God does have a, a plan for something better than anybody's ever experienced so far.
0: Folks, this has been a wonderful conversation about Counterfeit Kingdom by R. Douglas Guyvet goes by Doug and Holly Pivick. Holly, did you have anything else to add?
1: No, I've really just appreciated you having us on and and having this uh, fascinating discussion. Thanks so much, Lucas.
0: I wanted to push you guys. I wanted to get you going.
2: So no, I think your questions have been good, Lucas and I'm happy that you've asked them uh you know yeah. we we don't <laughs> we want uh to have that kind of uh dialogue and engagement and we we don't shrink from uh criticism even or being corrected if uh if something's amiss in our research but uh and and also the logic of our position, it matters to us, and you know that so we're we're grateful yes. that you take that approach. Thank you. And, 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 I, and yeah,
1: I do. I will add that our books are very heavily documented. Um, and so we encourage people um, to go check out that documentation so people can see that we're not just saying the leaders in this movement teach these things, but we will take them to the sources.
0: Holly, can you give people a, a way to connect with you?
1: Yes. So my my website is hollypivic.com. H-O-L-L-Y-P-I-V-E-C. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well.
0: And you're kind of the point person for, for connecting with people?
1: Right, right. And people okay. can sign up at my blog to receive updates. And often Doug and I will co-write articles together uh, about recent newer developments in this movement. So people can sign up at my blog to see, receive those updates.
0: Well, I I wanted to just say that i highly recommend the book all of the books especially the last one because i it's such a smooth read i did wish that there were more pictures in it because I'm a <laughs> you know i like and i like a pie graphs and just i like facts you know science there's not a lot of science and and statistics and you know but i'm and that's kidding i'm kidding but uh no i really do um I have a dry sense of humor. I really do highly recommend this, this book uh, counterfeit kingdom. And I do know uh, Doug very well uh, for a long time, 20 years, I was a student and, um, uh, and I know Holly as well. And uh, so you should get the book and you should read it. (laughs) And that's all I have to say. Well, thank you for that. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks, Lucas. Thanks. (sighs) Yeah.